All right, good morning. It's good to see all of you, as Isaiah said, who braved the cold. Today, part of our prayers should be to thank God for flannel and wool, things like that. Well, last week we began a new sermon series. We're taking a short three or four week break from our study of the book of Romans. And we're taking up a topical study called Membership Matters. It's a series about the church. Last week we looked at, you know, what the church does. What are we doing here? We talked about uh, some of the marks of a true church. We talked about the task of the church. And then we talked specifically on two of the things that Jesus specifically commanded us to do. And those are the ordinances that we take here at our church. This week we move on to something else. I want to talk about who makes the decisions around here. And how are those decisions made? What decisions are even made here? That's our topic. We've titled it, Who's in Charge Around Here? And it didn't take me very long to figure out that it's not me. Um, I don't mean that to (laughs) cast blame on other people. Uh, I just mean our church is not designed with a CEO to be in charge. And we'll get into that a little bit as we go on. I want you to know, before we get too deep into the weeds of how decisions are made, that I read this in a book this week, and it is a statistic, and I know what they say about statistics, but this one really rings true. After five years in the pastorate, this sounds right to me. This author said that 97% of decisions that a church must make week in, week out, fall into the categories of biblically indifferent, biblically unspecified, or biblically debatable. Biblically indifferent, the Bible doesn't say anything about it at all. Biblically unspecified, the Bible may mention it, but it doesn't give any specifics. Or biblically debatable. So I want you to remember that stat because we're going to come back to that. So just to kind of cut to the chase, Fairway Baptist Church is elder-led and congregationally ruled. We are elder-led but congregationally ruled. That's really the best way to capture the big picture, the widest possible perspective of how we do things here. So let's, let's define that a little. The elders lead in the day-to-day life of the church, while the congregation possesses the final rule over its decisions and over its activities. The elders lead day-to-day while the congregation possesses the final rule. I will tell you, this really is a rabbit hole, and you can go deep into it. In fact, it's part of what is referred to as congregationalism. You know, we have a new Bible study starting next Sunday night, and when the staff and and I were discussing it, this is what I wanted to teach on. Congregationalism. And I think they were very politely concerned that no one would sign up. 
And so they gently steered me in another direction, something a little broader in its appeal, and something a little more basic to the Christian life, like finding and knowing God's will. But I wanted to teach on it. I've mentioned to the elders that maybe one of these days we can do uh, an extra Sunday school class, sort of an advanced class on congregationalism for those who are interested in how the church is run. Because like I said, it goes very deep. It's a rabbit hole. So congregationalism is not a religion. And I'm not talking about it as a denomination here. We're talking about small c congregationalism this morning. It's a system in which each congregation is independently and autonomously ruled or it runs its own affairs, which so far that describes Southern Baptist churches. We are free to do pretty much anything we want as long as doctrinally we are in line with the Baptist faith and message. But there's more. The ultimate authority in congregationalism lies with the congregation. It doesn't lie with me, and it doesn't even lie with the elders, but it's with you, the congregation. So how can that possibly work? How is it that the elders can lead, but the church rules, the congregation rules? How is it that the church can have ultimate authority and not me? Let me put it as simply as I can. When you consider that the decisions that you, the congregation, have to make, you have to understand that they are binary. And by that, I mean the decisions we call on you to make are things like yes or no, in or out, truth or heresy. So they're binary decisions. And the job of the elders is to equip you to make those decisions. And we'll elaborate on that a bit. For example, we are to equip you to make sure that no one declares a false gospel It is up to you to discern that and to bring that forward either to the other elders or to confront the elder that's saying it. But it's our job as the elders to teach you what the true gospel is so that if you ever hear a false gospel, you'll know. And you can say in your binary decision, that is not the truth. That is heresy. We are to equip you on a broader scale, not just the gospel, but we are to equip you so that you can ensure that no one preaches something other than the Bible. No one should ever preach to you anything other than the Bible, and you're the one responsible for that. We are to equip you to make sure that teaching is kept central to the life of the church. We can do a lot of things, and we do. But teaching must be central to what we do here. The elders are to equip you not to water down the doctrine for the sake of itching ears. There are people in our community who would love to hear another kind of gospel, 
another kind of doctrine that if they just come to church and maybe give a little, their life will enjoy great success or they'll be uh, happy all the time. We can't water down the doctrine for the sake of itching ears. It's the elder's job to equip you to know that so that you can detect it if you ever hear it. The elders are to equip you not to admit non-Christians into the church. That's what I meant when I said one of those binary decisions is in or out. The only people that can join Fairway Baptist Church are Christians. We are to equip you not to give equal status to tradition as we give to Scripture. We can have done something a certain way at this church for 50 years. That's a pretty strong tradition. But it does not trump what Scripture says. You are to ensure that we practice the ordinances biblically. You, to, you are to ensure, and we are equip you to do this, that we not forsake the weekly gathering of believers here. We can't neglect things like discipleship or evangelism. We are to equip you to make those priorities so that you don't allow those things to happen as the congregation. Can you recognize those choices as binary choices? Yes or no? In or out? Truth or heresy? What God commands or what he doesn't command? What God commands or what God forbids. There are those type of decisions. Those are the responsibility of the church. So there's a relationship here we should note. These are all areas over which the church should exercise rule. However, they exercise this rule. You as the congregation exercise this rule by submitting to the elders training and instruction and leadership into how to exercise that authority. So when we teach you the biblical truths of church membership, those are the criteria you use to make those decisions. You submit to the teaching and the instruction and the training that you've received as you exercise the rule that you have as a congregation. So there are some principles involved here that kind of live in tension with one another. And they apply simultaneously. So let's talk about some of this. First, across the board, the congregation should generally trust the elders to recommend a course of action. You should trust the elders to recommend a course of action. And that could be the elders making a decision themselves. It could be asking you as the congregation to make the decision. Or it could be delegating that decision to someone else, which we'll talk about in just a moment. If you do not trust your elders generally, then there was a problem in the selection and the installation of the elders. Key in this relationship is understanding that you and the congregation are generally responsible for things like what and who. 
So what do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, the who is easy. You get to select and choose and vote on congregational leaders of the church. That's the who. You have absolute authority over that. And the what is the truth of Scripture, the gospel. You are to ensure that that is central to what we do here. The thing you're not always entitled to make a decision regarding is the how. That's where you trust others. That's part of that multitude of 97% of decisions that you can leave to the elders or to the staff or even to ministry leaders. And you can only do that when that trust is present. The second principle is that the more that a decision impinges upon the teaching ministry of the church, the more the elders feel responsible to make that decision. The less that decision impinges on the teaching ministry of the church, the more we'll leave that decision-making to others. For example, when a ministry like men's ministry or women's ministry or any other decides on a new Bible study, the elders want to know what it is that they're teaching. That has to do with the teaching ministry of the church over which we are responsible. We don't bring that to the church for a vote. The women are starting a, a study in what, a month and a half, two months, something like that? We're not going to put that out for a vote to the church. The ministry team made that decision. They got approval from the elders on what to teach. Everything else they do at that study doesn't need elders, food. <laughs> no, thank you. Somebody else needs to decide that. Or you'd have chips and water. Probably no decorations. The building's attractive enough, as it is. The third truth is that the more a decision impacts the unity of the church, the more the elders should incline toward giving the congregation that choice to make. For example, every year, the elders ask the church to approve a budget by voting in a binary way, yes or no. We accept it or we don't. There's not a biblical mandate per se to do that, but it helps to preserve the unity of the church. Maybe more importantly, the budget really establishes the overall direction of our gospel ministry. It shows the areas where we place high priority, and you as a church are absolutely responsible for the overall direction of our gospel ministry. So let me finish this little section on decision-making and submission. This is tricky, and a lot of people kind of get hung up on it. When it comes to these core areas, those, that list of things that I went down with you, things like teaching and doctrine and membership and the ordinance and others, the congregation's disposition should be one of trust and submission. But there's criteria that apply here. Your trust and submission depends on the elders' own submission to the faithfulness of Scripture. Your submission to the elders depends on their faithfulness to Scripture. 
on those areas where there are clearly biblical issues involved, the elders, I think, owe you a proof text. They need to be able to read to you, here's what the Bible says about this thing we're deciding. And if the elders cannot justify their recommendation biblically, then the congregation need not submit. And we're talking about when it comes to biblical issues. When it comes to all the biblically indifferent decisions that the elders might need to make, where Scripture doesn't give specific guidance or recommendations or anything like that, then the congregation should generally trust and submit to the elders as long as what we do, as long as our recommendation or our decision does not violate Scripture. So does that make sense? Do you see how things work? You probably didn't even know that this was in place. Most people don't know what congregationalism is. They don't know why they vote on certain things and not others. To put it simply, in matters that are central to the church being the church, no matter in what place or at what time, the elders exercise their authority by equipping the congregation to exercise their own authority over those issues. Things like doctrine, all those things I listed earlier, membership. And they should trust and submit to the elders as long as our instruction is prescribed in Scripture. Then there are those matters that vary between churches. The church next door may do something differently than we do. Then the elders generally exercise that authority by making decisions. And the congregation should trust and submit to them as long as we don't contradict Scripture. I will say that this idea of how to govern a church is very complicated. There are several methods out there. Various churches read the same Bible and come up with varied ways of governing the church. And they use magical phrases like, Bishops and presbyteries and sessions and even campus pastors. We are congregational in our method. And I believe this method is soundly established in Scripture. You notice I haven't read any Scriptures. If you look in the concordance in the back of your Bible under congregationalism, there is none. No verses. A study of this would take weeks. That's why I wanted to do it in a six-week Bible study or a 12-week Sunday school class. And we may still do the Sunday school class. I just haven't written anything yet. So we would have to go deep into Scripture, deep into the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, God's people were referred to as priests and kings. What do you think that meant? Why did he use that language? And what are the responsibilities and authorities of priests and kings. And how does that evolve into the New Testament gathering of God's people, the church? And what does it mean when Jesus says very confusing things like, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? What does that mean? 
And how does that have to do with the authority and responsibility of the congregation, of the church? All of these things bear on the definition and authority of the church. And so when I wrote this sermon, I was very hesitant to just touch on it lightly without going deeper because you probably have more questions now than answers. And so to get the answers, we would have to spend much more time in it. But I guess broad picture is you have the final say in the church. You have the final say over what is taught. You may not have picked the book of Romans, although I did poll several people before I selected that book to teach. But you have absolute authority to say, hey, what he's teaching is not what the book of Romans says. And you can say that to the other elders and they can come to me or you can come to me yourself. You have that authority as the congregation. You have the final authority on who is in the church. Not only those we bring in, but those we put out through church discipline. That is a congregational vote. The elders don't do that. The congregation does. So you have great authority and great responsibility as members, which is why membership matters. You're much more than a name on a list. So we've looked at this principle of making decisions. And I mentioned a group several times in this discussion so far, and that is a group called elders. So let's talk about them. Elders are one of two offices in the New Testament church. So who are they? What are they? Well, I think we can start by saying that God has always provided shepherds for his people. We have people like Moses in the Old Testament and Samuel and the judges who were all given to Israel. Then God gave the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and then rose again. But it didn't stop there. Scripture says that Jesus gave us the apostles and then the shepherds, the elders, to tend his flock as under-shepherds until he returns. Let's look at some scripture here. First, Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. First Peter Chapter 5, Peter talks about this. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So what else can we know about these elders? Well, one, whenever you see elders mentioned, especially in the, the letters to various churches, in the greeting, elders is always plural. Whenever you see it in the New Testament. And so our church has adopted that model, and we have a plurality of elders. It simply means more than one all the time. 
we've had between three and what's the most we've had? Five? Something like that. I think that's right. So what else does the Bible say about them? Well, it has some qualifications, so we know what kind of men they're supposed to be. Let's look briefly at just a few of them. First, they must exemplify godly character. The elders must exemplify godly character. When you choose an elder, you're really not looking for someone with a certain skill set. It's better to have a godly elder with mediocre leadership gifts than a charismatic leader with glaring moral flaws. Scripture focuses on character, and so should we. You can see these qualities in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Therefore, an overseer, which is another word for elder or pastor or shepherd, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It's an interesting list there. We move over to the book of Titus, chapter 1. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So, <clears throat> given the importance of this Christ-like character, let's slow down just for a moment and look at a few of them. The first one I want to talk about is being above reproach. Both of those passages mention it. That's what Paul began his list with. 1 Timothy 3.2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Some Bibles actually say blameless. Depends on the translation you're reading. So let's just get this out of the way. This obviously doesn't mean that somehow the elders have managed to transcend sin and lead morally impeccable lives. That's not what it means at all. Rather, a man who is above reproach displays an exemplary degree of Christ's likeness and free from conspicuous sin. Being above reproach is akin to being respect uh, respectable. There in 1 Timothy 3, 2, it says that just a bit later, above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. In Titus 1, 8, it says that they are upright and holy. There's a man named Tabidi Anyabwili. He's actually the author of the books that we give out in our Fairway 101 class. But he wrote a book on deacons and elders. And here's what he said. Being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. And I'll tell you that nominating men who are above reproach to be elders stokes the congregation's trust in its leaders. When you put people that are above reproach into the office of being an elder, trust follows. And as I said, if the church does not trust its elders, they made a mistake somewhere along the way, perhaps when it comes to them being above reproach. The second thing I want to look at is self-controlled. 
Now we know self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, it is a mark of the Christian life. So in short, Spirit-filled man is a self-controlled man. And that should apply to our elders. Self-controlled. Next, interestingly enough, it says he is to be gentle. How many of you would have put that in the list if you were, maybe you would have put bold or courageous or strong or something like that? Paul, writing in 1 Timothy, uses gentle. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. 1 Timothy 3, 3. There's a famous Swahili proverb that says, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Likewise, when a church's elders are combative and aggressive, the sheep get hurt. Let me just lay it out there for you. Egotistical, domineering, argumentative, pushy, gruff, or hot-headed, explosive overseers crush church members. We don't want that kind of a person ever to be an elder at Fairway. Instead, elders are to be gentle giants. They should exercise their authority with the tenderness of a shepherd, the gentleness of a loving father. Let's move on. The second thing that characterizes these elders is they must teach the Bible. 1 Timothy 3.2 says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Teaching the Bible is central to the shepherding work of a parent. You could see in our earlier discussion that the authority that the elders have comes from their faithfulness to Scripture. So an elder must be able to not only know it, but to communicate it to others. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, elders shepherd the flock like Jesus would. Just as Jesus proclaimed God's word with authority, so elders must be known for teaching the Bible as well. Now these are just a few of the qualifications. If you read those passages in whole, you'll see that there are others listed. In fact, there are some that deal with the elder's family, the way he manages his household. And those are all important, but time limits us a bit to what we can do, so I want to close this section with this last one. The elder must be an established believer. 1 Timothy 3, chapter 6 says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I mean, look, even young Christians, and I mean young in the faith, not young people, young Christians who are very excited have much to learn, much growing and testing ahead of them. The term elder even implies things like wisdom and experience, things a new believer lacks. So our elders should be established in the faith. 
So I hope you can see how the decision-making we open the sermon with requires men with these qualifications. Do you know men like that in the congregation? This morning, we're going to begin a time of elder nominations, but we'll talk more about that in just a few minutes. There's another office in the church, and that one is the office of deacons. So what are they? What does that mean, and what do they do? Well, actually, if you've put your trust in Christ, you're actually already a deacon in the broadest possible sense. The Greek noun diakonos appears 29 times in the New Testament, and it is almost always translated as servant or minister. Diakonos is usually just a generic term for servant. But in its narrowest sense, it is one of the two offices in the New Testament church. How crucial is this job of serving, of being a diakonos? Well, it's crucial enough for God to carve out an official position in the church for select members recognized by the congregation as model servants to mobilize practical service in creative ways. I read a book about deacons. I've read several. This one, I think, has been read by all the current deacons of our church. And there's a story in there that I never expected to see, and that's one of deacons and Nazis. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm serious. It's in there. You see, after the Netherlands fell to Germany in 1940, in the Dutch Reformed Church, the deacons rose up and assisted those who were politically oppressed, supplied food to them, provided refuge, place to hide. The Germans realized what was happening, and so they issued a decree that the office of deacon should be eliminated. Well, the Dutch Reformed Church was not going to have any of that. So responding in a synod, which is a group of their leaders, in July 17, 1941, the Dutch believers resolved this, quote, whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on diaconia lay hands on worship. And the Germans back down. One thing to remember as we're talking about deacons, this is not meant to be a training ground for future elders. The deacons are not junior elders or elders in training or anything like that. I mean, yes, some of our deacons later became elders, including myself. But it's a different office. It has different aims. It is to meet different needs and it requires different gifts. The best paragraph I've read about deacons was in a book written by Matt Smethurst. He says, deacons are not the church's spiritual council of directors, nor the executive board to whom the pastor answers. They are the cavalry of servants deputized to execute the elders' vision by coordinating various ministries. Deacons are like a congregation special ops force carrying out unseen assignments with fortitude and joy. But what does the Bible have to say about deacons? Well, many believe that the deacons 
came into existence in Acts chapter 6. Let's look at this passage real quickly. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we're, here we have a problem we have a problem in the Jerusalem church, even while it was growing. So the apostles asked the church, the congregation, to select a group of men to fix the problem so they could continue their work. And that was done. You can see their names listed there in the passage. Then you see the result in verse 7. But it was only after the work of verses 2 through 6 that you can see the reward and the joy of verse 7 and I think that's true today as well the way churches respond to conflict can stop a church dead in its tracks or it can accelerate the church's growth depending on how it's handled so the church needs good qualified men to handle issues related to service in general and related to church unity overall in Acts 6, it says that they were to select men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. By the way, the reason some people don't believe this to be the birth of the office of deacon is the seven men selected are never referred to as deacons. Whenever you see them mentioned later in the Bible, they're referred to as this one of the seven. So we're not going to come down on a position on that. It's something we can debate later over coffee or something. Uh, but they were never referred to as deacons, even though they clearly did the work of serving. So the main accomplishment of this story is not just that the Greek widows were fed, but it was that the ministry of the word was prioritized and protected. You see, the attack on the church here in Jerusalem was internal. It was distraction. It was to distract the apostles from their ministry. And the solution was for the church to select men to see that it was resolved fairly. The problem was serious and the apostles understood it. The ministry of the word could not be compromised, even for a legitimate need like this one. Again, to quote Matt Smethurst, a church whose ministers are chained to the tyranny of the urgent, which so often shows up in tangible problems, is a church removing its heart to strengthen its arm. It's a kind of slow-motion suicide. A church without deacons may lack health, but a church without biblical preaching cannot exist. There is, in fact, no such thing. So what do the deacons do? 
Well, that's a good question. And many deacons, including our own, past and present, have struggled to answer that question. I will tell you that much has been written about the job of deacons. Unfortunately, it's just not in the Bible. Their job has been labeled as shock absorbers, problem solvers, assistants to the elders, just to name a few. My position would be to say that it involves a little bit of all of those. They engage in a quiet work that has profound effects. Other than this passage in Acts, which some say doesn't even refer to deacons, nothing is written in the Bible about what deacons should, must, or can do. Some people think that gives you incredible freedom. My personality is such that that generates incredible frustration. I need a list of things to do. Not freedom to do almost anything. But that's what we have here with deacons. Nothing is written in the Bible about what they can do. So what does the Bible say about them? Well, there's a list of qualifications. It's very similar to the list we've looked at for elders. The significant difference is that they are not required to be able to teach. Now, many of our deacons have or are currently teaching somewhere in our church, whether that be in the children's area or student ministry or even adult classes. So these qualifications are listed by Paul in 1 Timothy 3. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So let's look at just a couple of these qualifications as well. The first one I want to talk about is that deacons must not be double-tongued. Deacons will often be confronted, you see, with people who are suffering or people who are struggling, and many of them are disgruntled or upset. These kind of people are prone to complain. In fact, I would imagine that many deacons have heard the needs of the church issued to them as complaints. In this case, the deacon must guard his tongue from disclosing information that the person being served should not know, maybe that they should not hear, they don't need to know. I mean, you shouldn't say things like, yeah, well, Pastor Scott can be like that sometimes. It's a big struggle even for some of us deacons. That may make the person feel a little better, but that's not helpful in the long run. The deacon must guard his own ears from being party to gossip, uh, party to gossip or slander against church members or church leaders. If the issue with the church member turns into that, you have to stop them. Not gossiping also means not hearing it. The deacon must also guard his own tongue from gossip or slander as he answers whatever questions the church member might have. 
You see, being double-tongued is not a minor flaw or a personality quirk. It's a symptom of hypocritical pride. It's consciously saying one thing to one group and then saying or insinuating something different to another. A double tongue indicates a fear of man. And I don't mean fear of getting beat up. I mean fear of loss of approval. And a deacon driven by the fear of man can destroy a whole church. So we cannot have deacons who are double-tongued. The next one is the deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. While it's true that the primary role of teaching falls to the elders, the deacon still is not exempt from knowing his Bible. The question is not whether he'll be a theologian, but whether he'll be a good one. Very simply, this qualification means that the deacon will know the truths of the faith, will hold on to them, and will live them out. The great promise for deacons is in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The two great rewards for deacons are respect and boldness. The first of those comes horizontally. It comes from the church. The second of those two is vertical. It comes from God himself. So those are the qualifications. And just like with the elders, there are others that we didn't talk about that you can see there in the list. But I want to close with just a summary of the work that they are to do. And this will vary widely depending on what church you go to. But I think this sums it up very well. The work of a deacon is to do these three things. They are to spot and meet tangible needs. They are to protect and promote church unity. And they are to serve and support the ministry of the elders. If we have men who are committed to do those things, our church stands a greater chance of remaining unified and encouraged in our work. All right, I have to admit again, there's much more we could say about church governor, governance and elders and deacons. I'm out of time already. There's a whole row of my bookcase dedicated to these topics. And perhaps, again, we can study them at another time. I want to ask our praise team to come to the front as we prepare to close. Today, I just wanted to give you a quick overview, maybe not quick, an overview of who's in charge around here. However, today was not an accidental date to preach on this. You see, this morning we are beginning a three-week-long period where you are encouraged to nominate men of the church to serve in the office of elder or deacon. You can actually do that at any time at Fairway, but we devote special times throughout the year to promote these nominations, to solicit them from you. So as you leave you'll find deacon and elder nomination forms on the table right out here in the foyer. Take as many as you want. Two things. One is we ask that you write a brief paragraph about why this person would make a good deacon or a good elder. And this really just prevents this from becoming a popularity contest kind of a thing. You should have a reason for wanting them to serve. The second thing we ask is that you put your name on it. And that's just so we'll know 
that you're a church member because only members of the church can nominate elders and deacons in this way. So that's how things get done at our church, in case you were wondering. And this sermon really doesn't have one main truth that you could take home with you to contemplate some sort of life change. Application, you know, we usually call it. It was more informative in nature, just telling you how we do things. And the reason we did that was to make your nominations more informed instead of random. But I would encourage you, congregation, to acknowledge and understand your role as the congregation in the health of our church. Understand and take seriously your authority and your responsibility. It's not just decision-making. That Ephesians passage says that he gave pastors and shepherds and teachers to equip the church to do the work of ministry. That's you. So that's today's look at how things get done here. Let's close with a word of prayer. We'll turn it over to the worship team.